Welcome to Ancestral Health Today, evolutionary insights into modern health. Thank you for being here with us. And today we have Dr. Alessio Fasano with us. Dr. Fasano is a medical doctor and he is a pediatric gastroenterologist and researcher. He currently holds many roles, including professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School and professor of nutrition at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, both located in Boston. He serves as director of the Center for Celiac Research and Treatment at Mass General Hospital for Children and co-director of the Harvard Medical School Celiac Research Program. In addition, he is director of the Mucosal Immunology and Biology Research Center at Massachusetts General Hospital for Children, where he oversees a research program with approximately 50 scientists and staff researching a variety of acute and chronic inflammatory diseases, including cystic fibrosis, celiac disease, enteric infections, and necrotizing enterocolitis. A common theme of these programs is the study of the emerging role of the gut microbiome in health and disease. Fasano is also the scientific director of the European Biomedical Research Institute of Salerno in Italy. Along with his leadership positions, he is a practicing outpatient clinician in pediatric gastroenterology and nutrition and a division chief. Today, we welcome Dr. Fasano. Thank you so much, Dr. Fasano, for being here with us. We really appreciate uh, you giving us the time to answer some questions and um, have our listeners, um, you know, uh, get a, a information from everything that uh, you know and have to say. Thank you, Isabel, for having me. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, so we can get started right away. You are um, very well known for your work with Zonulin and also for your work in the microbiome. Um, so as a podcast that really focuses on ancestral health, we would like to ask you, do we have any idea of what the microbiome of our ancestors um, was like? Do we have samples from, you know, frozen people that we have been able to analyze? What, what is the, the picture um, on that realm? Yeah, we do actually. We have not much, but the little that we have uh, give us a sense of, together with other data that we got for you know these remainings from two million years ago. So, in other words, when we start our journey as a species, that because of the lifestyle and because the environment were so different, also the microbiome was very very different. Uh, there were some. You know, species in the microbiome, so components that seem to be more represented than today. And there are other species that some of the experts in the field believe they are extinct, so they don't exist anymore. And for that reason, we're paying a price uh, because of the extinction of protective component, the microbiome, um, that makes us more vulnerable to a variety of conditions and diseases. Uh, particularly chronic and non-infective diseases um, such as, you know, cancer, autoimmune disease, metabolic disorders, and neurodegenerative disease, and so on and so forth. There is also another school of thoughts that believe that that's not the case, that there is no such a thing of a stint microbiome component. It's just a matter of balance uh, between what were more prevalent in the past and what is more prevalent now. Mm. 
So based on that, are there any evolutionary mismatches that are causing issues with the modern human gut microbiome? Probably. Uh, you know, again, uh, if you feel, you know, until the recent past, so for 99% of our evolution, we were used to be, you know, gather hunters and therefore, you know, vast majority of the stuff they were eating were fruits, nuts, vegetable, roots, tubers, you know, olives, uh, that kind of stuff. Of course, we all, we're omnivores, so we're also meat, but rarely, because you have to cut them, or fish. Um, and, you know, that, of course, gave an imprinting of the microbiome that's very, very different of what we have right now. Because the, the elements are the same, but the proportion that we eat are very, very different. And the microbiome eats whatever we eat. So, um, one of the major problems for people that embrace a Western lifestyle, indeed, is the high reduction of fiber intake. And, you know, the gathering stuff, fruits, vegetables, nuts, and so on, is worth a very rich in fibers. So the element of the microbiome that was enjoying this are in disadvantage compared to the others that enjoy, you know, other elements like, you know, meat, fish, and stuff that we use very scarcely in the past. And again, this reflects not only a major change uh, of, you know, lifestyle with the advent of agriculture, which we domesticate the foods like crops and, and, and you know, um, livestock, making, you know, our life definitely better because we spend 95% of food, food procurement and 5% for reproduction. That's it. Because now the agriculture... Uh, you know, 10,000 years ago was implemented. Now we have time to unleash our creativity to build the Colosseum and, and writing books that we didn't have a chance to. So that was a good thing, but, you know, it came with a price. And then there were two other epochal, you know, uh, changes that I believe would explain why we are more susceptible to diseases if we embrace a Western lifestyle. Urbanization, people leaving the countryside and moving to cities. These are not producing people anymore. Now they are consumers. You know, this happened again three or four generations ago. Before that, everybody was producing for their own needs. And if they didn't have something, they would exchange with somebody else They have different stuff. And the, the, the urbanization, you know, imposed, you know, farmers to step up and produce not only for themselves, but also to selling to these people that were just consumers and changing the dynamic of the matter. And finally, the kiss of death, in my opinion, has been the globalization. When a few multinational companies took you know, over the production of, of food, um, and of course, with that, when you have a massive production, the quality goes down because you know, it's the quantity that counts. And all this had you know, impingement of the microbiome that is very, very different from what was supposed to be evolutionary speaking, while we as human beings, we did not mutate. We still have two legs and, you know, two arms and, and we need some metabolic needs that, you know, are not served as well as in the past. It's like that for two million years, we built a, a superb engineer car, a Ferrari. But now, rather than to have gasoline in the tank, we put water and we wonder why the car is not performing. 
Yeah, absolutely. So what are those specific differences that we do see? We know that there are a few hunter-gatherer societies still left. Um, and there are also societies that live in more rural environments, that live more traditional lives and have more traditional uh, lifestyles and food sources. Um, what are we seeing as the key differences between those populations and, let's say, the modern American culture? Yeah, well, with the, with the caveat and the disclaimer that it's not just, it's the general lifestyle that is different. Um, so it's not just eating, but also a, a life that's less stressed in terms of, you know, lifestyle, um, that, you know, they have an environment that is different than ours and so on and so forth. But the bottom line, the key elements, the difference, um, of course, it's, again, a nutrition. Uh, you know, that's one key element. Um, and, uh, of course, if if you have a nutrition that, you know, is, is so different from what we were supposed to eat, uh, that, that, that has consequences. Now, the issue here is not just rural versus urban or industrialized versus developing countries. It's also economical, social, and demographic differences that really make the difference here. Let me explain. If you come from a developing country and therefore you still use or you know a a, a, a rural lifestyle, you're more exposed to um, you know the dirt and, and the animals that will help your immune system to be less belligerent. Uh, we all know that if you are too clean for your own goods, so you will live a worse lifestyle, you're more increased risk to develop food allergies, for example, compared to kids that they just run, you know, in the dirt. Um, but also, you know, again, um, there, there is also the fact that, you know, the, the environment can be less polluted, and therefore this also have an impingement. Uh, that, <clears throat> again, you have a less uh, stressed uh, lifestyle, and that also will have a difference. But the, the long story short is that, that people that still live gather hunters kind of lifestyle, they are, as historically was for our species, more susceptible to be uh, sick and die of infectious diseases, for example. Um, and while if you embrace a, a Western lifestyle, you're most susceptible to die of chronic non-infective uh, inflammatory diseases, as I was mentioned before, you know, the, the, the typical diseases that we see now in a big uprise uh, in, in industrialized countries. Yes, absolutely. So how does the microbiome influence that development of chronic uh, disease? We know that there's, um, you know, more recent attention paid to long COVID, um, but we know that post-viral conditions are not anything new. So what are the dynamics at play in that so, situation? That's right. So until the recent past, we were convinced that any disease of humankind will require two key elements that were necessarily sufficient. You have to be genetically predisposed, so you have to have genes, particularly for multifactorial conditions like the one we're talking about, that puts you at risk. And then you have to be exposed to an environmental trigger that is mismanaged by your immune system because of genetic predisposition and therefore create the condition of this you know, inflammatory process that leads to disease. We now know that 
once we complete the human genome project that was aimed really to find a way to solve you know our the disease of humankind because at that time the paradigm was one gene one product one protein one disease when we figured out that we're genetically rudimental because we're made of only 25 28000 genes that paradigm went out of window and we start to ask how we can be so complex and how we explain the you know these multigenetic conditions that we eventually brings to disease. And, and, and again, then we discovered that there were at least another three elements at play. So definitely you have to have the genetic predisposition and environmental exposure. They are necessary, but not sufficient. But you also have to have these two worlds to interface, to, in other words, to be in touch with each other, meaning that barriers that compartmentalize these words they don't work anymore. So including the gut barrier, the, the, the highway barrier, and so on and so forth. The fourth element is an immune system that fights too much, becomes hyperbelligent because you have chronic inflammation. So he's not capable to stop when it's needed to stop the inflammation. And pertinent to your question, the fifth element is the microbiome. And how this microbiome works and play a role? Well, because you know, the, the reason why, if, and when, and how genes would be shifted on and off so that you start your march from genetic predisposition to clinical outcome seems to all be dictated by your microbiome. It's a phenomenon that we technically call epigenetics. So the genes are there, but they are not put in motion until somebody will do that. And it looks like that the microbiome is the transducer of all these environmental elements that I mentioned before, nutrition, uh, again, pollution, uh, drug exposure, antibiotic treatment, uh, infections, that will eventually touch those cords and put that in motion. You mentioned long COVID as an example in which you have a viral infection that causes a dysbiosis or an imbalance in the microbiome that in turn will eventually start that process to activate genes they put in motion this chronic inflammation that goes after your heart, after your, your kidney, after your GI tract, and this translates in the classical long COVID, you know, symptoms. Um, and you're right, this is not a concept that's new because we know that a lot of this condition, for example, autoimmune diseases in general, seems to lead to an infection. But that was just a cosmetic observation, not a mechanistic cause-effect relationship, but now we start to see for a long COVID as a consequence of SARS-CoV-2 infection. And with that, a lot of other infections that now have been proved to modify your microbiome in a way that, you know, again, epigenetically can put your risk to start that switch from genetic predisposition to clinical outcome. Oh, all right. So you mentioned that barrier being uh, broken as one of the factors. So what role does zonulin play in this mechanism? So until a few years ago, we didn't know, um, the idea was, you know, these barriers are there to protect against us as invaders. Uh, the only one that we have visibility in, and we know is the skin because it's out there, okay? But, but we, we have many other barriers. Probably the most important, because it's the largest interface with the environment, is the, the, the gastrointestinal tract. You know, in adults, if you stretch your guts on the floor, we'll cover a double tennis court. So it's huge. And there's a lot of stuff that comes through there. Good, 
good things and bad things, friends and foes. And, you know, the, the intestine has to decide, you know, how to do all this. Well, the entire GI tract is formed by single layer cells that were conceptualized to be sealed with each other by a sort of cement. Until in the, in the 70s, a Japanese group, you know, discovered that there's no cement, but there are doors, most of the time closed, technical tie junctions. And what was unknown was what is the key that opened these gates? And that's where zoning comes into the picture. That zoning can be considered a sort of key that opened these gates for reasons that we need to, to help us to scoop the environment and, and build a, a, what we call mucosa energy that will keep us healthy. The problem arises when we produce too much zoning. So these this gates we start, got stuck open and stuff comes in all the time as one of the elements that I was telling you of these five pillars that are crucial to develop this, these conditions. And is that imbalance in the microbiome um, what is triggering that overproduction of zonulin? It's one of the most powerful reasons why zonulin is produced too much. An imbalance in microbiome can create the condition of uh, excessive zonulin production. Okay. And how about, um, how do micro microbial produce modifiers of intestinal permeability like butyrate, propionate, relate to the control of the intestinal uh, permeability by zonulin. So, so, you know, like every other biological phenomenon, there is a yin and yang, so to speak, in terms of the balance of, the, of, of function. So zonulin will push you in the direction to increase gut permeability and mainly as the consequence of, of imbalanced microbiome, dysbiosis. What you lose are protective elements. In other words, microbes that can produce elements that can eventually counterbalance that increased permeability. You mentioned butyrate as one of the most studied, what we call postbiotics, so a product of microbes that can eventually be beneficial for us because can, among the other stuff, favor a tight barrier and therefore protect us against this uncontrolled passage of instigator inflammation. Fascinating. Now, um, another uh, thing that plays a role here um, is antimicrobial. So antibiotics, um, and you and, you know, a, a lot of other physicians have talked about the pitfalls of using antibiotics. Um, but there are also reports of people with chronic conditions like ME-CFS and long COVID that have had dramatic and sudden remissions um, after taking antibiotics. Um, with some of them having um, a permanent increase in their baseline well-being, if you will. Um, Tess, who introduced us and the president of um, AHS, had had this happen. I have had this happen. And Tess and Tamara, another patient scientist, are investigating this antibiotic-induced remissions with a project called Remission Biome. Um, their hypothesis relates to microbiome modifying um, and lowering the information in the body and in the brain. Any ideas for what this mechanism could possibly be? Of course, uh, you know, there are 25,000 hypotheses that you can put on the table, but, you know, this is a, the two faces the same coin. So, in other words, it is undisputable that antibiotics, of course, you know, thanks to antibiotics, we, we have a long life expectancy because mm -hmm. 
as I was saying before, developing countries, and you know, again, gathering centers, the main reason why they got sick and died were infections. And the life expectancy two million years ago was 14 years, now it's 80. So definitely the antibiotics been one of the reasons why we have a longer life expectancy. But they come the price if they use that inappropriately. In other words, if you have a meningitis or a pneumonia, it's obvious they have to take you know, antibiotics. But, and I get, this is my mea culpa as a pediatrician, if you give antibiotics, you know, in the young kids, for example, the first two, three years of age, where we know that 90% of the infection are viral, you don't do any good, you know, service to that patients, but the only thing that you impinge is the change of the microbiome. If the microbiome was in balance, so was healthy, was in a friendly symbiotic relationship, but you give, you know, antibiotics, of course, you create this biosis with all the consequences that we discussed. Your case could be somebody that had a dysbiosis and give a probiotic made a little bit of order of that imbalanced microbiome. So the question really to understand if you know antibiotics can be detrimental or helpful is to establish where you're the baseline. If you're having a friendly relationship with your microbiome, that would be a detrimental intervention. If it was imbalanced, and you give antibiotics, maybe that this will put you back in balance. But in the antibiotic use to improve health has the same kind of limitation that we have right now to use probiotics, to use fecal transplant, and so on and so forth. We're making educated guess and a short in the dark. The project that you mentioned is one of the ways to try to understand mechanistically why if I take antibiotics, I feel better. And it's more than welcome initiative to try to really understand and answer key question. How do I establish if I have a baseline microbiome that is in balance or not? And if it's not, what should I do to put that in balance? Because this is so personalized, because the, the, the ideal sweet spot of a friendly relationship is the consequence of who I am, genetically speaking, so my genome is different than yours, and what kind of microbiome I have in my body that it's either in a friendly or belligerent relationship with me. You and I may be affected by the same disease, let's say diabetes or MS or, you know, long COVID, whatever that will be. But the intervention for me could be very different than yours to achieve the same goal. I disease remission. We're working on it because we have to establish what would be the best way to rebalance the microbiome. We're, we're not quite there yet. And in the meantime, rather than do nothing, we try. We try with probiotics, with antibiotics, with fecal transplant, you know, prebiotics, symbiotics, you name it. But, you know, what is going to be an apparent economy that, that was part of your question? How come that some people have antibiotic treatment, they have a detrimental outcome, and others they have an advantageous outcome like you? It really depends where you start. If you start from not having a problem and you are good for relationship with microbiome, the antibiotic definitely will be not helpful. But if, on the other hand, if you had an imbalanced microbiome and you give antibiotics, some people may have tremendous and, and lifelong, oh, not lifelong, you know, long-standing, you know. Uh, improvement of their symptoms, as we see with people with fecal transplants. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So one, once um, 
one achieves a balanced microbiome evidenced by, you know, not having any problems, feeling generally well, what is the advice course of action from there? What type of nutrition, lifestyle interventions one can continue to have in order to assure that that balance is not disturbed? This is a very complicated question that I've been asked many, many times by my patients. Said, okay, now what? <laughs> How can I maintain a healthy status quo? The logic answer is we don't know yet. But also logical is, at least in my sense, the more we depart from the plan of evolution, the way that we're supposed to live as a lifestyle, the more likely we're going to have problems. So again, I mentioned this already, but you know, it is obvious that if I have a good, uh, you know, nutritional, you know, uh, attitude, if I have a good, uh, you know, sleeping uh, habits, if I decrease my level of stress, if I keep a good exercise, um, and again, I don't take too much life too seriously, um, you know, uh, I will have a longer and healthier life. Who showed this as a fact? People that embrace, for example, the Mediterranean diet. People, actually, I would say Mediterranean lifestyle, because it's not just the diet, but everything else that I told you. These are the ultra-centenarian in the, in the region of Italy, where I'm from, that they have no stress. They they walk all the time, even when they are elderly, that they go in the fields and then they take care of their fields. They eat the way they were supposed to. Um, you know, and they, they go to sleep early and they wake up early. In other words, that kind of lifestyle is the one that, you know, is probably the more conducive to play our genetic cards the best way possible. Of course, I'm not advocating to go back, you know, you know, centuries and live their lifestyle. But, you know, what I'm saying is you want strawberries uh, 12 months a year? You're not going to embrace what is normal. You got to eat strawberries in, you know, July and August. So in other words, you know, mild zero, local crops, you know, in season, uh, organic, uh, you know, not using stuff from these multinational companies that, again, don't look at the quality of the product, but rather the quantity, um, you know, all the stuff that I believe is a common sense. Yeah, absolutely. So should we then be tailoring that nutrition to our genetic heritage? Um, and how does that balance with the environment that we're in? So if my ancestry is from Africa, but I'm living in the northern United States, how do I balance those two things in order to optimize my health and optimize my um microbiome? And does that differ from someone who is already healthy as opposed to someone who is, um, you know, suffering with a chronic condition. So I'm going to say something that will be very provocative. <laughs> so forgive me for saying that. I foresee a future in which the vast majority of the conditions that we suffer, the vast majority of diseases will be treated with nutrition and not with drugs. And the reason why I'm saying this, because again, if indeed it's true, as I believe it, it is, and there are compelling evidence mounting up that, you know, um, nutrition will shape the microbiome that in turn will epigenetically decide if I stay healthy or not. 
it's only obvious that I can eventually intervene that way to ship my microbiome to play my genetic art better than I'm playing right now. Both for treatment that has to be personalized, meaning if I have genes, because I come from Africa, that will favor a certain kind of diet, that's the diet that, that will make me to play my genetic cards better. And therefore, you know, keep myself healthier. And if I already have a problem, then I have eventually tailored my diet eventually to treat that properly so that eventually I can ameliorate the problem. I give you two examples, so two totally different diseases. Epilepsy. Epilepsy is now treated with anti-epileptic drugs. Because there are some cases in which the anti-epileptic drugs do not work, so you don't have any other options, science forced to eventually look at a specific diet to see if they can help. Well, guess what? The ketogenic diet has been proved in these non-responsive patients to be effective in controlling epilepsy. And we know now the mechanism, what happened in some of the mediator of neuromediator, they are off balance in people with epilepsy when they embrace, you know, a, 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 you know, a ketogenic diet. Another example, totally different story, inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's disease. Historically, what we do to take care of this patient, as soon as they, they are diagnosed, we want to put a break on inflammation and we use anti-inflammatory drug, steroids, uh, or now biologics, and, you know, and so on and so forth. Well, you obtain exactly the same results with no side effects because, of course, all the anti-inflammatory drugs, they have side effects, but put them on a special diet, what we call a lamented diet, that does nothing else than changing the microbiome, like in the ketogenic diet, and create the condition to ameliorate inflammation. So this is probably how we're gonna treat a lot of other conditions for which now we have only the possibility to treat the consequence and not the cause. If I take the anti-inflammatory drug, I treat the consequence, the inflammation that is being caused by something. In this case, most likely dysbiosis that make me to turn on genes that create inflammation. It's like that I have pneumonia, I take Tylenol. Of course, the fever will go away, but as soon as the, the, the effect of the Tylenol is gone, the fever will come back unless I already get the cause. And that's where is the challenge, the opportunities. But I need to also mention something else here. When I was talking about you know social and economic disparities, because like now, who's gonna pay the price? Also for dietary intervention, in terms of not being able to afford that, are the people that are socioeconomically in disadvantage. Now, you know, um, another example, classical example. You know, which one are the kids that they are more at risk to have obesity? Not the wealthy one. These are the kids that are from mothers, single mothers of three kids that they have to be fed on a $10, you know, budget a, a day. You can't go whole food and buy fruits and vegetables and nuts and healthy stuff in season. You go to the junk foods that will fill the belly for a dollar. And, you know, if we want to be savvy in trying to capitalize on this new knowledge that we're building, we have to be honest enough as a society to make this information and therefore the implementation of this information available for everybody. 
health is a right for everybody. And, and you know, leaving these people behind again, um, you know, while, you know, expensive drugs are not affordable for these conditions, now we're talking about nutrition and make that not affordable as well for these people. It's something that we should very seriously look at as a society because that would be not appropriate to do that. Yeah, absolutely. The social determinants of health play a huge factor as to who can be healthy and who cannot um, afford to implement the interventions necessary, even at the basic level of food. Um, in order to- about, you know, we're talking about if, if I have diabetes and I have to take a pill, it's an extra activity that I have to do. Mm-hmm. In the future, that I have to eat anyhow. I eat differently and my diabetes will be taken care of. And all the complications that will come with that, because your life expectancy will be decreased tremendously. If you have obesity that brings me to a metabolic disorder like diabetes that will affect my heart, my brain, and key organs that eventually will not allow me to really completely, you know, um, exploit my, my life expectancy if I was not obese. Yeah, absolutely. So how do we change this landscape starting with our kids? What do we have to do for for our children to be able to grow with a healthy microbiome? Do we have to go back to pregnancy? Do we have to look at, you know, the uh, lifestyle and health of the parents? How far back do we need to go? in order to give our children the best opportunity for living a long and healthy life. I have a, an equal one example, so as well, but makes you know, my grandson was born in the midst of um, the COVID lockdown, okay? Mm-hmm. And my daughter and, and son-in-law were very busy, of course, trying to keep this family afloat with their job, switching from in-person to remote. And my wife and I, extremely busy as well, said, well, you know, you know what, we will help you out. So when was the time to, you know, introduce baby food to this young man? Um, we implement a Mediterranean diet. So in other words, this kid has been fed, you know, fruits, vegetables, nuts, and the way that we, we typically, you know, eat in the, in the Mediterranean. Now he's three. He has no idea what the junk food is. If you put French fries here and broccoli there, he will go for broccoli big time. Where I'm I'm going with this, it's a matter of developing taste. When he will grow up and will be a father, guess what his kids is going to eat? They will not go to eat junk food or, 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 you know, a fast food place to eat because that culture is not there. Again, this is one of the shifts of the paradigm that we have to have if we want to really go back on track and not derail as we did as a society. Again, mm-hmm. you know, um, the, the, when I was growing up, the sense was the, the, the fatter the better. The kids have to be puffy. <laughs> no, that's not the case. Uh, of course, we don't want, you know, malnourished kids, but we want kids healthy. You know, this fellow is not the 90th percentile weight and height, and he has a lot of energy. And honestly, uh, you know, knock on the woods, he had very little infections. 
meaning that you know he's playing his genetic cards the best way possible. One of the reasons why, because he had a good nutrition. Yeah, absolutely. But what about those kids whose parents are not as healthy? How far back do we need to go in order to, you know, ensure that um, our kids have the best possible so, situations? So again, um, it's it's a question again also of culture. So if 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 I buy only junk food that I bring home, you know, and of course that's what I eat as a parent. Uh, you know, by by emulation and also by default, these kids—that's what they eat. If I go to school and the school offers me, you know, prepacked, you know, fruits and stuff that they put in the microwave, that's also something that unfortunately I will be forced to eat because that's what's been offered me. So, how far back we have to go as a society? We have to take, a, you know, um, a, 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 a pause consideration of how we have been mistreating our microbiome. We're focused on diet, but again, in terms of lifestyle. And and I believe, you know, Michelle Obama started this, you know, revolution and say, in my backyard at the White House, I'm going to put, you know, a landscape to put my produce there. That's what we should do. And, and again, you know, big cities, including here in Boston and New York and so on and so forth, we've been seeing popped up this, you know, city gardens in which you can rent a little bit of space and you produce your own, you know, fruits and veg, I mean, vegetables. I think that is cool, very cool. But this is a little step in the right direction that we should continue to have a society because now this is a, a forcing of changes going to the family nucleus, but the next two or three generations, this will become the norm. We have a sad example in the past. Three gener two generations ago, 90% of people were smoking here. Cigarettes. It took two generations to really have a strong campaign. And if you see somebody with a cigarette in their mouth, it looks very weird. <laughs> that was norm two generations ago. We don't think about it because, you know, the, the current generation, because they didn't have that kind of experience, they don't even know there's been this radical change. Same story with Apple with the nutrition lifestyle. If we will implement this, it will become the norm and this will not be something that you force on people. Yeah, absolutely. So do you think that the um, drastic increase in childhood conditions is really due to this disturbance of the microbiome? Things like an increase in autism, ADHD, um, mental health problems, and how do we go from there to educate our parents, our school systems, in order to help them understand what that influence is. So, so you you mentioned you know um, autism, and and you know this is probably the quintessential example of the consequence that you pay when you disturb this you know symbiotic relationship with our environment, therefore with the our microbiome. All these chronic conditions arise. But, you know, think about this. In the 70s, the prevalence of autism was 1 in 5,000, 5, 6,000. 5, now it's 1 in 55. 1 in 55. With, the, with a male-female ratio of 4 to 1, that means the next generation, one child, one boy out of three, will be, uh, out of four, will be out of commission because of autism. It's disgraceful. And, you know, 
I, I, I'm biased, of course, and I believe that microbiome has a great deal to do with this. But we have a huge project from the European Commission with 16 partners that is doing exactly this. For the past three years, we've been recruiting little kids at risk for autism because they have a brother or sister with a condition. And we followed them from birth until eventually they developed the problem. And we're trying to ask why they got to that final destination, why the others starting from the same point, they did not. And we start to see that, you know, it's deviation of the microbiome really precedes months. The, the process of neuroinflammation that brings them to develop out is months. If this data would be confirmed, we will have targets to say, okay, this kid is really taking the wrong direction. We need to intervene with whatever mean that we'll have at that disposition, including antibiotics, including probiotics, whatever that will be, that will shift back the microbiome you know, composition and function to what is a friendly relationship and leave the brain alone in terms of neuroinflammation. That's the, our only real dream. Yeah, if we do that, there's a lot of hope for our future in shifting this dynamic and um, being able to get back to a healthy society um, that can do so much more. Yeah, so we're coming up on time here and I want to be respectful of your time. So this is a great note to end it in. Um, anything else that you would like to say um, to our audience? Anything to summarize uh, the points that you have made here and, and what advice you have for everybody to follow? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, just to wrap it up, you know, we are really in a steep learning curve about the microbiome. This is a field that was not existent until recent past. We have techniques that were inimaginable a few years ago. So I predict that, again, the lesson that we learn by, you know, acquiring more and more information and data that can only be capitalized if we use this data with model, mathematical modeling with machine learning and artificial intelligence, that that's what we're doing. I, I see in the near future, I don't know how far from now, that indeed we will have the understanding how to take care of our microbiome. If we have pets home and we are conscientious owner of a dog or a cat, we know what to do to make sure that these animals, they have the best life possible. We should pay the equal attention, if not more, to our own internal you know, ecosystem, this farm of animals that we have in, that needs to be nourished and treated well, because if they do that, they pay great dividends to our health. If we mistreat them as we've been doing uh, embracing a Western lifestyle in the past couple of generations, we have under our eyes the consequences that we paid. So, um, you know, uh, bottom line, respect your microbiome that will make, you know, you to live a better, longer life. That's wonderfully said. Thank you so much, Dr. Fasano. Thank you for giving us the time today. And thank you for helping um, our audience understand the importance of the microbiome, but also what steps we can do um, to better balance and to continue to learn about it. Thank you so very much. Thank you, Isabel, for having me again. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Ancestral Health Today. We hope you enjoyed our discussion on how evolutionary insights can inform modern health practices. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast to catch future episodes.